and welcome back to Engage with Eagle Forum. I am Kirsten Hassler, the Washington, D.C. Executive Director of Eagle Forum. Today, I am joined on the mic by my friend and Eagle Forum board member, Glenn McKay. Today's episode is the final in our two-part series on the coronavirus. We hope that you enjoyed part one's discussion with Georgia's U.S. Representative Jody Heiss. Congressman Heiss imparted insight into what is actually happening in Washington, D.C. in response to the pandemic. As we continue the discussion on the economic impact of COVID-19, I am personally thrilled to welcome to this episode my colleague and friend, Scott Parkinson. Scott has worked in politics for over 13 years. He worked in the United States Senate for three different senators and then served as the executive director of the Republican Study Committee, one of the largest caucuses in the House of Representatives. He then became chief of staff to former Representative Ron DeSantis and then served on the transition team as Congressman DeSantis became Governor DeSantis in Florida. Scott is currently the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Club for Growth and lives in Arlington, Virginia with his wife and three girls. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Scott, you have followed this pandemic and the federal government's response closely. We think you would agree with us that the greatest threat to Americans isn't the virus itself, but the economic impact of the government-guided shutdown of everything from schools to churches and small businesses. The market has tanked and unemployment has skyrocketed. Most Americans are watching for their stimulus text, but have no idea what else was in those packages passed by Congress. Can you give us an overview of the stimulus bills that have come out of Congress and what they mean? Sure. So I think if you wind back the clock, uh, there have been three and a half different legislative responses to the coronavirus pandemic. The first one was uh, relatively small, even though it sounds large. It was $8 billion that went directly toward health uh, care workers and direct services to try to develop a vaccination and uh, sort of prepare with the Centers for Disease Control. And that was legislation that overwhelmingly passed Congress. Then we had uh, phase two, and phase two included a very, very large burden for small business owners. It included a paid leave mandate requiring at least 80 hours of paid leave for employers. And they basically said, oh, there's going to be this system through the U.S. Treasury Department so that, you know, capital can be advanced to small businesses and this doesn't really turn into a job-destroying mandate. But I think as we've gone through the process over the last six weeks, and each week on Thursday morning as we learn the new jobless claims numbers, that we've really learned that this paid leave mandate is destroying small business and job creators because uh, it was really developed by people that are good at looking financial at financial portfolios, but folks that really haven't signed the front of a pay of a paycheck mm-hmm. as a job creator. And uh, we've seen, as of last Thursday, over 26 million Americans losing their jobs. And I think that that number has a strong possibility this week to exceed 30 million. So we're just uh, right in the middle of this pandemic and what the economic response will look like. There have been, uh, as I mentioned, these, these different phases that Congress has taken in order to address the economic crisis. But really, when you're just throwing money at a problem, 
-hmm. without a pro-growth solution, it doesn't do anything except for put a Band-Aid on the issue. And right now we need a vaccination and we need therapeutics. We don't need Band-Aids. Um, so I think that even though Congress has thrown, uh, well, let's see, the total here is is actually coming pretty close to $3 trillion. There was $2.2 wow. trillion through phase three in the CARES Act. Then phase 3.5 included another $500 billion, $310 billion of which went to the uh, Paycheck Protection Program that was depleted in its first tranche of $350 billion in only 13 days. Wow. So really there are people that are clamoring for what they sort of view as free money. We've even seen the Los Angeles Lakers take mm -hmm. a paycheck protection program loan and announce that they were returning that money because they didn't realize that the money was gonna run out so fast. The Lakers are one of the biggest brands in the entire world. And that organization is worth over $4 billion. So. It's, it's really a, an, itch, an issue here when, when Treasury hasn't discerned between those that really need capital in order to continue to operate and those that are large organizations, whether it's Potbellies or the Los Angeles Lakers. So just to be clear, that pot of money was available, what you're saying, from everybody from the Los Angeles Lakers to the gift shop down the street, right? Any small business was going after those dollars. Yeah, and I think that they tried to define a small business as 500 employees or less. Okay. Um, obviously, those are large and medium-sized businesses that aren't in the corporate structure. Um, and, you know, the $500 billion for distressed industries, that's really what the corporate money, those guaranteed loans were. Um, and so you saw money for the cargo industry and airlines and even Boeing had a special line item, I think, of $17 billion to help them because they were viewed as an essential to national security type business. And so really when it looks at uh, the eligibility for these uh, various, uh, well, I guess I would just call them extensions of capital, uh, Treasury had a ton of control to determine how to allocate the money and uh, they did ultimately pick winners and losers. I think that there's hundreds of anecdotes throughout the country of small businesses that applied for the loan through their bank and the bank says, sorry, we lost your loan or mm -hmm. it was delayed in getting submitted. Um, and you know, I've, I've got direct family that didn't receive the loan in both Florida and in Pennsylvania. And wow. I'm sure that this is, you know, not just exclusive to my family, right? This is every right. single one of your neighbors probably knows a small business owner that was denied in the first tranche. So you've got that $310 billion that was passed last week for phase 3.5 uh, in additional funding for the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, the system did crash this week when they tried to reopen it. So uh, my biggest concern here is that that money is going to be gone in two weeks. Yeah. And what's Congress going to do when they return? They're just going to throw more money at the problem. So in all of this, these phases and what's to come, are there any wins for small business owners or conservatives? I think that small business owners that received the Paycheck Protection Program are viewing that as a win because the rates associated with those loans are they're winners. And mm -hmm. They are helping some of those businesses stay open. 
but the problem was it didn't really discern between those that were distressed small businesses and those that were already going to be fine and had employees showing up, right? If, if you're mm-hmm. a local shop on Main Street and you're a bookstore, right, and nobody's coming through to buy books, you needed a paycheck protection program so you don't have to close your shop and, right. and you can make your, your monthly payments. Um, but if you're sort of one of these essential small businesses that's had the ability to re- remain open uh, and you're not seeing the cash flow issues and you're still paying your employees, a lot of them just saw it as free money. And um, I can understand why it's a business decision to apply for that money. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of people that are pretty satisfied with the program, but an overwhelmingly number of folks that just did not have access to it because of how fast it ran out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would just look for folks to move forward with that. You know, this is sort of a conservative's nightmare when it comes to big government saying we're here to help during Mm -hmm. a national pandemic. And uh, there are a number of uh, items in phase two and phase three that I think are incredibly concerning. They created this big perverse incentive with the unemployment insurance benefit. Uh, So right now states determine what the maximum benefit is for their own state unemployment insurance program. And Congress said, we're going to allow every person that's unemployed to receive an additional $600 on top of their state's maximum benefit. And so for many employees, they're actually making more money unemployed than they would if they went back to work. I think that's why you're seeing stories of disgruntled workers that were not laid off. Their employer received a paycheck protection program loan in order to continue to to stay in business. And, you know, folks were pissed off because they didn't get a chance to kind of go and have a staycation and you know, their kids are out of school, but um, they've still got to show up for work. So I can understand um, why they're a little unhappy here. But the, the biggest issue here is that the unemployment insurance program benefit that the federal government came in and came to the rescue with was totally flawed. And you cannot pay people more to sit on the sidelines and not work than to be productive toward the economy and, uh, you know, be a part of a business. So, you know, as you measure the macroeconomic effects of a healthy economy, one of the main drivers is productivity. And right now, productivity throughout the country is is really low, um, especially when you're looking at, at various industries that are not deemed essential, right? And then you're seeing, you know, folks that'll have to cut wages. When wages are decreasing, that's also a big macroeconomic effect of, a, of an economy that's going to fall into a depression. Mm. So as, as I look at the job numbers that are coming out every week, as I look at uh, the data that the Labor Department puts out, I obviously have concerns about the depth of the recession. And that's why I think that we need to be focused on pro-growth reforms that can speed along the economic recovery without having a major deficit impact. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right now, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to share the story of one of Eagle Forum state leaders who has been affected by the virus. Cindy Honkoop and her husband have owned and operated a construction business in Washington state for over 40 years. Cindy's husband tested positive for COVID in March, and while she was sick for a day, she was never tested because of ration testing. 
They have both fully recovered, but it's unclear whether their business will survive. As a result of the government restrictions, they had to release almost all of their employees and lost most of the work they had lined up for the rest of the year. Construction was not deemed essential by their governor unless it was a government project or ag-related. They were forced to release 60% of their longtime faithful employees after the stay-at-home order was enacted, and now they are down employees by 90%. And this goes exactly to the point that you were making, Scott. I was talking to Cindy earlier this week and asked her about the loans, the small business loans. And she said there were just strings attached that didn't work for them. But regardless, it appears that in their area, the larger companies uh, got the bulk of the funds and little to none was left for the mom and pop businesses. And like you said earlier, we know there are thousands of stories like the Han Coops. It seems that while the government at all levels was trying to protect Americans, instead they've killed business and stifled the economy. So continue that discussion. In your opinion, what is the proper role of government in a crisis like the one that we have faced? Well, this has been difficult, right? Because you've had governors issue stay-at-home orders. They've, you know, shut down schools. They've shut down business. They've shut down government, right? Uh, So many people are teleworking and homeschooling and just trying to figure out how to live a normal life. Um, but, you know, the, the data that's out there, it, it, I think that there are a lot of small businesses that receive the paycheck protection uh, assistance. It just didn't go far enough and it didn't really give the trade-offs between those that needed it right away and those that probably could float uh, for a few months. So. Um, that's why I think the money just ran out so fast, uh, in the situation here of of Cindy and her husband, obviously we're thankful they've recovered from (laughs) this sickness, right? Obviously you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. The disease is awful. There are people that are dying from it. And, you know, I think that a lot of young people like us are concerned, not about our own health or our kids' health, but getting our parents or our grandparents sick, right? Yeah. And um, obviously, there's really heart-wrenching stories throughout the country of that happening. Um, so what, what's the main role of government in this kind of a situation? Number one, I think that there is totally an appropriate role for the government in stepping in and trying to work with private industry to develop a cure, a vaccine, a therapeutic, ways to make sure that the people are protected, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, since the government has stepped in here and essentially said to people, you cannot go out, you have to social distance, you, you can't go to the bars, you can't go to restaurants. Um, th- this is sort of like a taking, right? They are taking from the people by mandating that you stay home unless you're doing an essential activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there probably was the role of the federal government to come with this assistance. I just think that the Paycheck Protection Program and then also the $500 billion for distressed industry was totally flawed from the outset in the way that they were going to be distributing the money. And let's be honest, this is our money. These are taxpayer funds that are adding to our deficit, that are exploding the the national debt, and, uh, you know, eventually the bill's going to come, come due. And I think folks are trying to decide if we're just going to tell China that all the money we owe them from, uh, from buying our debt is, is going to go away because, hey, they, they started the China virus, the Wuhan virus, <laughs> or, um, 
Is it going to be something where we just continue to print money? Um, and so the, the federal government obviously has a role in terms of uh, allocating federal funding uh, when it's been approved. So I think that that's okay, but I just don't think that the fashion on which it's been done has been pro-growth or conservative. Hmm. Yeah, the proper role of government is certainly a question that everyone needs to be considering right now. Uh, Scott, a few days ago, you tweeted a video of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or affectionately called AOC by many of her followers. <laughs> on a side note, you can and should follow Scott on Twitter at Scott T. Parkinson. But she said in, in her tweet, or in the video that you tweeted, quote, when we have this discussion about going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should say no. We are not going back to working 70 hours a week to just put food on the table and not even feel any sort of security in our lives. End quote. What exactly is she saying? Well, listen, she's playing to this out of control socialist base that doesn't want to work, that wants to depend on free money from government, free benefits from government. Mm -hmm. They obviously have articulated that they want a, a quote unquote living wage for workers. Um, but I think if you ask those 26 million people that are unemployed right now, if they would like to work to put food on the table, they would tell you overwhelmingly yes. There are right now millions of people uh, that are at the kitchen table and they're trying to figure out exactly how they're going to put food there. They're trying to figure out how they're going to make sure that their kids don't have to skip meals. And, you know, you've got Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, bragging about how much she loves ice cream. And I think it's just so out of touch how far yeah. the left has gone. Uh, and they just do not understand uh, what exactly it means to be struggling in the era of an economic crisis. Right. The other thing is, we heard earlier this week that the House of Representatives decided to cancel their session for the week of May 4th but the Senate does plan to convene uh, underneath the leadership of Mitch McConnell. And I think obviously he's got this appetite to continue to confirm judges, right? They're not gonna be mm -hmm. passing any major legislative response next week to the coronavirus, but the House did cancel their session. And when we look at the House and Senate, obviously our government, our federal government is essential, right? It's essential to protect the constitutional rights of the people. And right now, a lot of those rights are being infringed upon. I think that you're also seeing uh, the, uh, the attorney general really taking a look at overreach within the states that are violating the people's rights. Mm -hmm. So as Congress is essential, let's keep in mind that these Democrats, they want that blue collar vote, right? Right. This is also a vote that Donald Trump did pretty well with in 2016, right. the blue collar workers in the Rust Belt. Yep. But the Democrats are targeting people in Pennsylvania and Michigan, and they're looking at folks in Wisconsin, and they're basically telling them, we need you to continue to, to work. We need you to be the delivery driver of the truck. We need you to be the frontline workers in our hospitals. We need you to continue to to do these things during the era of coronavirus, but we're concerned about our own health. We're concerned about our own ability to convene as a body. 
And, you know, the reports out of the Democratic caucus's call from yesterday, you know, they're, they're mind boggling to me that you've got all these members that really do want things to continue. They want Amazon drivers to give them ice cream and all this other crap, but they're not willing to show up and actually do their main duty of voting in Washington. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's also this discussion of, oh, we should allow members to do proxy voting and vote from their districts. That is not a good solution because it gives even more power to the leadership who live here in Washington. They're not even going back to their district. Right. You know, and that, that goes to both sides. I think that, you know, we've seen recently during the so-called recess, um, our own leadership broadcasting videos from Washington. So um, let's just face it what it is. And I think that Congress is essential. They just need to take one flight. They should take a one-way ticket back here. They should get back to work. We should be developing pro-growth opportunities for the American economy and really reevaluating the exposure that we have to China when it comes to uh, the production of, of pharmaceuticals and of uh, essential medical supplies like these, you know, masks and ventilators and gowns and, and so forth. Right. So when we're talking about actual solutions um, and recovery, the Club for Growth recently launched the Cut Red Tape Coalition that calls on Congress and the Trump administration to take bold steps to simplify regulation and reduce barriers on this innova innovation that we're talking about so that our economy can recover and hopefully flourish again. So tell us more about this effort. Everybody knows that the Trump economy was successful for really two main reasons. Number one, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from December 2017 really drove productivity mm -hmm. and uh, growth in America through reductions of taxation, especially the corporate rate cut and this temporary provision of allowing for full expensing of capital expenditures. Um, when you uh, think about the other pillar, it is Trump's deregulatory agenda. He's always bragged about the number of regulations that he's uh, repealed or abolished in exchange for any new promulgation of a regulation. And I think that the ratio is about eight to one. Um, and so the deregulatory agenda, rolling back these major regulatory uh, rules from the Obama era, uh, really accommodated the lowest unemployment that we've seen in generations. Uh, you know, we, we finally saw what I think you can call um, pretty good data on quarterly growth in GDP. You know, we're obviously exceeding the growth that we had seen from the Obama administration. And initially, you know, the Democrats wanted to say, oh, that's only because of the things that we did for the last eight years. That's finally catching up. Right. But really, it was direct action that Congress took with the president in passing the tax cuts and then also, um, you know, reducing the regulatory burden on job creators. So as we think about pro-growth ideas going forward, Club for Growth joined with seven other organizations, and uh, we launched this Cut Red Tape Coalition. Uh, the Cut Red Tape Coalition currently consists of leaders from Freedom Works, Heritage Action, Americans for Prosperity, Tea Party Patriots, the Job Creators Network, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and um, we're also going to be inviting a lot of other groups to join. I think if anybody's listening now and they want to be a part of advocating for reducing red tape, 
and finding pro-growth ideas that we can get in the next legislative response in Congress. You're certainly encouraged to check in with us at cutredtapecoalition.com. Um, I think you've seen a number of groups really put out exceptional information on steps that are being taken right now at the state, local, and federal level. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform is leading the way with that. They've already identified almost 400 regulations that have been relaxed, modified, or waived during the coronavirus. And I think that wow. is indicative of the fact that we're totally over-regulated now. These right. are regulations that are standing in the way of job creators. Mm -hmm. They're driving out competition and they're slowing economic growth and productivity. Um, we're not talking about having dirty air. We're not talking about drinking brown water, right? Everybody wants to have clean air and clean water, right? And there's appropriate regulation for those sorts of things. But, you know, there's regulations related to uh, healthcare services through telehealth. There's regulations related to speeding up the process that the Federal Drug Administration has uh, as they consider the approval of medications. There's all sorts of things that are even related to the economic crisis that we're suffering through the coronavirus pandemic that we can relax and that we can temporarily uh, get rid of for now. And if we ever decide to bring them back, there better be a damn good justification for doing so. Right. Um, so the Cut Red Tape Coalition, we're going to be building a lot of momentum here in the coming days and weeks. Marsha Blackburn is leading a, an effort in the United States Senate. She's a senator from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And this, this letter says, hey, we need to use uh, a, a legislative response here to cut red tape uh, in order to speed along the economic recovery. And uh, uh, Congressman Steve Shabbat from Ohio He's the ranking member on the Small Business Committee. He's leading the House letter. So we're strongly encouraging folks to, to check that out. They're in Capitol Hill offices that might be listening. Or um, obviously, if you want to call your member of Congress, we're doing a phone-to-action effort uh, through these groups and uh, really just calling on members to decrease the regulatory burden on job creators so that we can get Americans back to work, reopen the economy, and be stronger than ever before. Yeah, I think it's important to point out too that this isn't just a Republican or conservative issue. This is an American issue. And the club's polling actually shows that the American people across every party support deregulation, maybe not all for the same reason, but for one reason or another. Isn't that right? It is. Um, so we, we tested a couple of things in some polling earlier this month. And the resounding answer from respondents was number one, they do think that they're being overregulated. And number two, they think that it's smart to waive regulations in order to accommodate an economic recovery. This isn't just Republicans, right? Obviously, you know, as you're surveying voters, some people I think are a little sensitive to regulation. Uh, in, in terms of being a job creator. Other people are sensitive to regulation in, in terms of having a, a healthy environment, right? Mm -hmm. But as we do our scientific polling through WPA Intelligence, who's uh, you know the, the contracted pollster for this one, um, mm -hmm. it really showed across party lines and even with independents that there is very, very strong approval of deregulating 
the economy so that we can get job creators the necessary capital, the necessary uh, paperwork needs to just be abolished, right? Why are we filling out hundreds of pages of paperwork when we should be focusing on, you know, getting people back into the, to the workforce? Yeah. Um, so we feel good about the polling. We've obviously shared that with folks in the administration, it's public. Uh, and I think that that's why that this momentum and the appetite to uh, really cut red tape is growing. And I think that it, it stands a pretty good chance for us to get long-term reforms that are only gonna help when we think about an economic recovery in the coming months. Very good. Yeah, I hope, I'm hoping that's the one of the long-term uh, impacts of this coronavirus is something positive. <laughs> um, on that note, how do you think this effort to get America back to work will play into the 2020 elections? Wow, that's a loaded question, right? Um, <laughs> Go ahead and give us your predictions too, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, I think that there are a lot of voters that are really starting to get concerned about the depth of the economic recession and the likelihood of a depression. Mm-hmm. I think that as you see, you know, four to five to six million people every week losing their job, that more folks are recognizing the economic consequence of stay-at-home orders and uh, social distancing. So we think that there needs to be a return to economic normalcy. We obviously want people to be safe. And um, as I talk to members of Congress, I say, you know, just be prepared for the second wave in October. Make sure you have enough testing. Make sure that uh, whatever happens at that point that we don't go into really a a strong double dip where the recovery will take, you know, a decade. Um, But, you know, I I think that Congress and the House and the Senate both of those are up for grabs, right? I think that the Democrats could could win the Senate back. There are, even before the coronavirus, there are numerous seats in play for the Democrats. They've done a good job recruiting a couple of candidates in uh, key states. And there's only a couple of pickup opportunities for Republicans with Alabama, and then a really, really outside chance with Michigan. Um, but the, the way that coronavirus weighs heavy on voters' minds when it comes to next November, well, right now we're, we're still uh, roughly, you know, seven months away. And we all know that every presidential election of my lifetime and uh, every balance of the House and Senate really ends up getting flipped between September and voting day, an election day. And I think as we look at what the consequence of is of the pandemic, that uh, President Trump has, has got a real opportunity to talk about why he took this serious during uh, what I think will be three presidential debates with Joe Biden. Uh, I think that you know it, it is basically a, a choice between two people when it comes for the presidency and uh vice president biden there are real vulnerabilities with his own campaign right now even just stepping back and not putting on a partisan hat i think the people even in his own party have second thoughts about him being the nominee 
there's you know sort of buyer's remorse and Club for Growth obviously issued a poll showing that Andrew Cuomo was a preferred candidate over Joe Biden. Um, obviously, that's a real long shot for Biden to be uh, taken off the ticket, even though he hasn't been formally nominated. I think that he will be. Uh, so it'll be Biden against against Trump. What do Trump's coattails look like for congressional candidates? There's probably about 70 House seats that are in play for either side. And uh, obviously, Club for Growth, PAC, has made uh, about 20 endorsements so far. And I would uh, expect us to make a few more, and then we'll use our Super PAC Club for Growth action to, to weigh in and support certain candidates' campaigns. Um, but uh, it's going to be tight. That's the bottom line. And yeah. we know that the House right now, the Democrats have a pretty strong majority. Uh, you know, before coronavirus, I think it would have been very difficult to win back the House, but I think that Republicans will net seats. Mm -hmm. And then in the Senate, I think that it is a total toss up because yeah. of these races in Arizona and Colorado and Maine and uh, you know Iowa and North Carolina. Those are gonna be really tight races. They're expensive. And you know the president's popularity in some of those states is wavering. So we'll be watching real closely and, and seeing where we can make a difference. Um, but obviously, one of our organization's main priorities is electing those that believe in economic freedom and liberty, and uh, will actually vote that way when they get to Congress. So I think that you'll, you'll see a number of really, really solid candidates get elected that we've endorsed. And I'm excited about what that means in terms of policy being effectuated and, uh, you know, just this ideal of freedom coming back to the forefront because right now our freedoms are being in, infringed upon they're mm -hmm. telling us what we can do and what we can't do we obviously want to be safe we want to we want to protect each other but at some point like donald trump says the cure cannot be worse than the disease yeah so if you're interested in um, those pro-growth candidates that the Club for Growth has identified uh, worthy of, as worthy of support, you can see a list of those at Club for Growth, F-O-R, clubforgrowth.org. Eagle Forum has a pack as well, and you can see the list of those candidates that uh, Eagle Forum has deemed as worthy of support at eagleforum.org. And I think that you'll find that many of those candidates align. So Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, to end on a lighter note, I have one more question for you. <laughs> I recently heard you've really embraced being a girl dad and you know every word to every song on Frozen. So what's your favorite Frozen song? From the first one or the second one? Oh, geez. <laughs> Overall. Overall. <laughs> oh man, I really liked Fixer Upper from the first one. Oh, that's a cute song. My husband is really into uh, Into the Woods. He's like, that, is, that song is totally for the dads. It's like a throwback kind of journey sounding. And if you see the music video, they have like queen moments in it. It's uh, Yeah, Weezer did the song too. Yes, it's and they did awesome. a music video, which is really weird. But anyways. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And again, follow Scott on Twitter at Scott T. Parkinson. Um, and you can get more information on the Club for Growth at clubforgrowth.org. And we also encourage you to go to eagleforum.org for more information on these issues as well. As 
As we touched on in our discussion with Scott, following a season of record-breaking employment, the unemployment unemployment numbers have skyrocketed to unprecedented levels following all of the stay-at-home orders from federal, state, and local government. We're now at 3.8 million jobless claims in the U.S. In response, there's been a growing movement to reopen businesses and to challenge those state-issued guidelines concerning coronavirus. So with us now is Eagle Forum of Alabama's Executive Director, Becky Gerritsen. You may remember Becky from before. She's no stranger, stranger to the podcast, and we encourage you to go back and listen to episode 11, where she talks about the government intimidation that she faced as a conservative activist and how that get, gave way to where she is now. So Becky, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to be with you guys. Um, Tell us, what have you been doing with your Reopen Alabama efforts, and how have you seen success at this point? Well, we've done a couple of things. First of all, a few weeks ago, our lieutenant governor came out with the recommendations that were given by our task force to reopen Alabama. And for the most part, they were very good, and it would allow um, retail, restaurants, daycares and close contact businesses to begin reopening. Of course, they're all with very strict protocols and ways to keep their customers safe and their employees safe. So we put out a press release and wrote articles in support of that. And we even held a car rally in support about five days later. And it was a rally of support so that the governor would sign off on these. Now, I'd like to get back to this later. The the rally turned into something quite different, but um, those were the first two things. We have our legislative team is working with legislators to draft a bill that will protect businesses from lawsuits over the coronavirus. Mm. We think that small businesses really need to be protected right now, and also this may include churches as well. So we're busy making sure the things we want in that bill are, are added into that. And then... I've been talking with a lot of small business people and independent contractors and trying to support them. We're now at the point where many of them are ready to defy the government orders. Hmm. Here in Alabama, we're still technically not really open. They have opened some retail, but all of the salons and all these other businesses are not open yet. So just trying to help in that way. Uh, Becky, you posted a picture on Facebook of the Gadsden flag-coiled rattlesnake with the phrase, don't let the mask become a muzzle. For background, if you're not familiar, the Gadsden flag was popular during the American Revolution, and it says, don't tread on me. The flag has been used as a symbol of American patriotism and resistance to government when it imposes a burden on civil liberties. So, Becky, what exactly do you think don't let the mask become a muzzle means? Well, a couple of things about that flag that are so neat is the rattlesnake was used because it was really only found in America. They didn't have that in Europe. Yeah. That was one of the first things. And then it has really sharp eyes. And so it's vigilant. It kind of represents vigilance. <laughs> and then rattlesnakes never begin an attack. Um, they only attack once they're treaded upon. So it's something like they don't surrender. Once you attack them, then they will come back at you. And so it's really a sign of courage. Mm -hmm. And this is something else I didn't realize about it, but the rattles, the number of rattles on the flag were the number of colonies at the time. I didn't realize the rattles had that symbol, but, but anyway, we we brought that flag out again when we started the tea party back in 2009. Um, 
just basically saying, don't tread on our liberties. We will strike back. We are Americans. We have the right to these freedoms that were fought for. And I feel like this virus has been used as a way to shut us up. So let me go back to the car rally that we had uh, mm -hmm. last week. It was a car rally in support of these recommendations. So people from all over the state, we started a website, we had a Facebook page, we had people contacting us from all over the state, and we were just gonna be driving around our capital and you know, with our flags and just in support of these recommendations. And then we were going to have a microphone set up on the Capitol steps with people who wanted to go park their cars and come out and talk about why they wanted the governor to pass, you know, to approve these recommendations, how it has affected them, how this virus has affected them. So, and we were going to use all the social distancing and, and all of this. And so the police reached out to us and we met with three different departments the day before, and it went great. We really, these were guys that I've worked with before. Everything was good. They said, we don't want to have any problems. We don't want this to look bad on us. We don't want it to look bad on you. We just want to make sure everybody's safe. And we reassured them that it was a car rally so people could stay in their cars and not, you know, compromise any public health. Well, the next morning we get there to start the rally and all of the roads were blocked off. Oh, wow. And our route had been on the website. So people knew where to go. Well, a lot of people don't live in Montgomery that were coming. So once these roads were blocked off, they didn't know where to go. Yeah. So this rally actually kind of turned into a protest of the government shutting the streets down. Now, the guys I had met with the day before that said everything was great, when I talked to them the next morning, I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. And they said, Becky, we don't know. They said, when this happened above our heads, everything was fine. There's no reason for this. We don't understand why they're doing this. And you know, the excuse they said, the, the uppity ups who made this decision said they blocked the streets because of construction. But the roads they blocked off were brand new paved, had no construction or anything. So that muzzle on that rattlesnake, you know, that mask is this right now is used to stop our liberties of even just driving our car around the Capitol. They yeah. saw that as such a threat that they shut the roads down. And this wow. is just a, a tiny thing of, of what's happening across the country. Mm -hmm. And you would agree, like, I don't think the people at the top, people in the government, they're not inherently evil. We're not saying that. It's just this idea that maybe we don't know as much as they do. And so they need to make sure they're protecting us. And really, that's not what the American dream, being an American, our, you know, liberty is about. Right. It's just it's really self, frustrating. Self-government. We don't yes. need the government to tell us what to do. Right. Right. It reminds me though of my, my children all the time. I'm like, why are you making this a deal? Like I told you to do one thing. Why are you, you know, <laughs> refusing to do that? And then you make it a big deal. <laughs> Sometimes I want to say that to government. Anyway, I digress. Um, so what do you say to these people that claim advocating for reopening the economy is only a Republican issue? You're only worried about the money. Well, that's a great question. And it, the polling does show that when you poll Democrats and Republicans, the Democrats are way more scared of the virus mm -hmm. and the, the people, the health of people and keeping them safe. Republicans are more on let we need to open the economy. But I think what Democrats especially need to realize is that you cannot have freedoms like we have. 
You cannot have the best healthcare system in the world. You cannot have good schools. You cannot have a welfare system that helps those who really need help if you don't have a strong economy. Right. And I think Republicans, on the other hand, realize that, that a good economy is what helps people be actually healthy right. and allows them to have good health. So I, I think it's just a misperception maybe on their part, but the, the two really do go, you, you can, you have to have a good economy mm-hmm. to be able to provide these things for your citizens. Right. And, you know, you can't watch TV right now without seeing a number of commercials with stay-at-home public service announcements or PSAs. It just seems to really drive this fear. So how do you think that we should balance the real threats of the coronavirus with reviving the economy and the social practices of many Americans? That's a great question. Um, The number one thing I think we need to realize right off the bat is we need to acknowledge the amount of irrational fear that is driving policy right now. Instead of talking about all the deaths, we need to be saying that 90, you know, more than 99% of the people that get this virus are going to get over it. Mm-hmm. It's like 1% or less they're actually going to die from this. Mm-hmm. But yet it is, oh, it has just turned into a God for us. Mm-hmm. We have dropped every other issue that our country cared about, our liberties, our going to the doctor, our family relationships, our church. We've, we've thrown it all away and we've fallen on our knees to worship this virus. Hmm. And I think that we need to acknowledge each person needs to think about, run through the scenario. If I get this disease, you know what? 99% chance I'm going to get over it. It's mm-hmm. not going to be that bad. But I think... The narrative that's being driven right now is just, it's full of fear. So first of all, acknowledge the fear. Um, The second thing is you can have a balance. You can look at the data and science on the, about the illness, but then you also need to look at the loss of life that's going to happen at the other end of an economic shutdown, the number of suicides, the mental illness, the physical abuse, gosh, there's just so much, the spiritual health, the social health, Mm -hmm. other health issues. All these people are putting off things that they need to go to the doctor for, which are probably getting worse and worse while they're staying at home. All of these things need to be considered as well. So I think you, we can easily find a balance between them, but what we need to look to is common sense. Mm -hmm. Let common sense be our driver. This is what we use every day throughout our lives to manage how we live. And our circumstances are always changing, but we go back to common sense. What makes sense for my life? What makes sense for our community? Mm-hmm. And let that help drive our policy because what we're doing really doesn't have a lot of common sense. Yeah. So if our listeners want to help get America back to work, where... Um, do you suggest they look? What are some ideas of things that they can do? Well, a couple of things that I've been doing and first, you know, looking at common sense, just step back from everything and kind of shut yourself in and say, what makes sense? What makes sense for your family? For people right now that have a businesses, a business that's been shut down. If I had a business right now that was shut down and I was a hairdresser, let's say I would defy the orders. Because I have, I would have to feed my family and 
that's what God tells me to do. God says, provide for your families. This is a good thing. This is what we're supposed to do. Who is government to come along and say that I am not allowed to do that? <laughs> so if I had a business, you know, I would take the, the risk because I need food on my table. So look to common sense. I am also reviewing American history. Mm. How did our founding fathers you know, push back against what was coming against them. They were going against the world's largest empire, hmm. but they wanted their freedom and they wanted their God-given rights. And these are our God-given rights that we're talking about. So looking there, I also think contacting your city council members and your county commission, our county commission wrote a letter to the governor and said, we are ready to open up. We are our citizens are responsible. We've done a great job. Our hospital is capable of taking these patients and now it's time to open up. And I, that kind of happens at the local level and then flood your state legislators phones and, and emails and let them know how you feel because they, they're going to be the decision makers. They're going to have the most influence over the governor in your state. And so you really need to just speak up. We cannot be quiet right now. Mm -hmm. And find your local Eagle Forum chapter too. They can help yes. you out. <laughs> yes, that is great. Definitely. Um, so what do you think some of the positive outcomes of this movement will be? My biggest hope is that this drives us back to the Lord. Hmm. Um, many, you know, we are still a Christian company, country. I know some people say we're, we're post-Christian, but no, when you look at the whole of America, we still are very Christian Many people aren't living that way. They haven't sold out their lives to the Lord, but I think this is making people reevaluate. So that's number one. I think cultivating the family, which is what Eagle Form is all about. I'm hoping by having our kids back at home and not in schools, and we don't have a million things taking our time away in the evenings, going here and there and running from soccer practice to basketball and all of that. I'm hoping that parents and families begin to really love their families and want to have changes. When we go back to normal, I hope they'll pull back into their families. Mm -hmm. Those are two of the biggest things. And then I hope that Americans will stand up against an oppressive government. Yeah. We, we so need that. Well, mm -hmm. and just returning to these founding principles, these idea of what, these, this idea of what liberty really means. We talked a bit ago with Scott about, um, AOC, you know, kind of the, the leader of the progressive left right now and how she's saying we shouldn't even question going back to work. No, that's not what, it's not only not what being an American is about, but it's not what being a human mm -hmm. um, is about. I'm sure somebody how, can say that much more articulately than me, but. How can you sustain that? How right. can everyone just stay home? Don't they realize you have to have an economy, you have to have money coming in well, and I wonder if it's a disconnect, you know, I saw, um, a young girl that I grew up with posting yesterday about, Hey, sign this petition to forgive student loans. And in the comments, she said, you know, I was lucky enough to not have student loans, but I'm signing this for my friends. And someone responded and said, well, who's going to pay for it? And she said, well, like I said, I don't have student loans. I'm just signing this for my friends. And he said, and this is one of her peers, somebody's got to pay for this. Somebody <laughs> has got to pay the lenders back. And yeah. who will that be? The taxpayers. Her, she that didn't exactly. have the loan, right? Exactly. So I feel like there's a disconnect too of how an economy actually works. Absolutely. And even for me, 
I've kind of had to go back and say, okay, I want to study economy a little bit more mm-hmm. and really understand the dynamics that are going on here. Another thing, ladies, that I think we don't realize the boat that we're in yet because the dominoes haven't fallen for us to see. A food shortage is coming. Hyperinflation is coming. It's not here yet. And I think if it was here, people would wake up and see it. But life is going on pretty normally um, for some people because some people still are able to work. Mm -hmm. But as this goes on, and even if we stop it now, those repercussions are still coming. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt when it happens. So I, I think that's why we're all here on this podcast trying to scream at everybody, wake up. We have to stop the madness. And I, on the list of things to do, I think also we want to reiter- reiterate, I think we talked about this earlier, but support small business, support yeah. your local businesses, your friends, your neighbors, and what they're doing, because that is how we will all survive this and return to you know some normalcy of life. Yeah, our county commissioner you know, I told you, they wrote this letter to the governor. He was talking about even now the, the close contact, the salons aren't open yet. He said, but retail is, and a lot of these salons sell products. Hmm. He said, go in and buy their products, buy your shampoo from them instead of at Walmart right now, just every little bit you can do helps. And I love that. I love it when we come together and try to help each other. Right. Yeah. Being creative with your resources for sure. Well, and for those who are believers, you know, I've been constantly reminded of what Jesus said when he said, I'm sending you out like sheep, sheep among wolves, you know, be wise as snakes, but innocent as doves. So this is such a balance and there's no, there's no absolutes in this. It's all a balance and figuring out works, what works for us as individuals, as families, as communities, as states, and then hopefully as a nation. Thank you so much, Becky, for joining us. Listeners, we sure hope that this episode has been informative. To stay engaged, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We would also be very grateful if you would consider giving us a positive review and rating. It really does help us continue to do what we do. Until next time, from your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum. 